Good morning. Thank you for coming to church on this rainy day. I like rainy days like this. I grew up in Seattle, so days like this make me feel all nostalgic. Um, But it also makes me think of another passage. This is not part of the sermon, by the way. It's just for free. Uh, Christ says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, I'll tell you that my Bible just disappeared on my phone. This is my technologies. Yeah. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecuted you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward would you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? So I think about how the people I find it hardest to love, and when it rains like this, that God is also sending upon them life-giving care and nourishment, even though he's calling them unjust. That's, you know, that's surprising. But that's not what the sermon's about. The sermon's actually about something harder. Uh, let's begin with prayer. Merciful God, may we have ears to hear your word, and may our hearts be lifted up to see the Lamb who was sent to take away the sins of the world. Through his name we pray. Amen. All right, how many of you like detective stories? Yeah? There's some really great ones out there. Perhaps you're a fan of Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot, that Belgian mustache donning genius who was excellently, excellently portrayed by Kenneth Branagh, right? Or maybe you're into Sherlock Holmes, whose knack for intuition was unparalleled. It was also brilliantly portrayed by Benedict Cumberbatch and less brilliantly portrayed by Robert Downey Jr. Um, Or maybe you're a fan of Dorothy Sayers' Lord Peter Whimsey for a more academic type. Or maybe you're into television and you were captured by Angela Lansbury's Jessica Fletcher from Murder, She Wrote. Or maybe Sykes' uh, faux psychic Sean Spencer. Or Pink Panther's Spectre Clouseau. Or more recently, you might have found yourself enjoying the emphatically British Daniel Craig doing a southern accent as Benoit Blanc in the Knives Out series. Now, these are some fantastic stories to kind of lose yourself in. And they have a similar sort of plot structure. You go along looking for things that may or may not be clues. A bloody glove here, a footprint there, a key witness along the way. And it's all kind of confusing at first. Is this the bad guy? No, wait, it's this other person. They were seen walking in front of the house just before the murder happened. No, it's Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick, right? We get taken down all kinds of false trails, wild goose chases, and frankly confusing sets of events. That is, until the detective solves the mystery. They've been quietly collecting all this information, putting the pieces together, and usually at the end of the book or movie, they're ready to put it all together for everybody. All of the suspects are usually gathered in one big room, right? And it's usually locked from the outside. And two bumbling police officers are usually there to make the arrest, right? They have no idea what's happening. The detective then makes a long speech summarizing everything we've seen so far. Remember that knife that we found? We thought it was the murder weapon, but it turns out that so-and-so was just chopping up pickled beets. Remember those footprints? 
They were indeed made by the culprit, but they weren't heading to the garden. They were heading from the garden and stuff like that, right? And then in a really famous Scooby-Doo type moment, the detective uncovers the real culprit to the surprise of everyone present, right? You know what I'm talking about, Scooby-Doo, right? The mask? Yeah, okay. (laughs) So that's basically the flow of a detective story. There's a first narrative that we go through, the one we see a whole lot of messy clues and jumbled narratives, supposed suspects and surprising alibis. Then we get the second narrative, the one put together by the detective, teaching everyone what we should have been looking for all along, the one that discloses the true culprit. We need guidance to see that second narrative, and that's just what we get with the detective. She or he teaches us how to see the story rightly. You see where I'm going with this? It's not only detective stories that work like this, it's the Bible too. The Bible's a collection of genres written over a period of many years under all kinds of different circumstances and for many different audiences. There's your first narrative. It is also the unified word of God for the people of God testifying to the Son of God. There's your second narrative. And Jesus here is our great detective, right? That's one of the I am statements in John. No, it's not. No, it's not. He is the one who teaches us how to read the Bible rightly, how to see how all the pieces come together to tell a coherent story. And how does Jesus do this? Not only is he our great detective, but he's also the one to whom the stories all point and about whom the stories were written. Now, this is an admittedly odd result for my illustration because here Jesus is both detective and the culprit, but we're just going to roll with it, (laughs) all right? The most important place to see this is in Luke 24, 27, where the resurrected Jesus, in conversation with some travelers, quote, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Or my personal favorite example, we see this, that in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and 11, that all the stuff in the Bible, quote, occurred as examples for us and were written down as warnings for us, even though we weren't even around. So when we see Israel drinking from a rock in the wilderness, we see that we learn, Paul says, that the rock doesn't just point to Christ, the rock was Christ. That's what it says in 10, 4. 1 Corinthians. Christ is our great detective, the one who shows us how to read scripture by showing us how it is all about him. Now, I begin with this setup because one of our passages today can seem pretty harrowing. Genesis 22 brings us face to face with God's relationship to death. And it can seem like God likes death. Not only that, It can seem like God likes the death of precious children at the hand of their parents. That would seem to make God out to be quite a villain, a cruel God who doesn't know the value of the relationship that exists between parents and their children. Not only that, but Isaac is not just any child. He is Abraham's covenant child, the one through whom Abraham's hopes were to be realized. So God not only likes death, does not value the relationship between parents and children, but also changes his mind quickly about the promises he makes to the people he loves. Or so it seems in a perfectly understandable reading of this passage. And in a week, when we're thinking about the death-dealing tendencies of human beings, 
And it's important to see that actually God does not delight in the death of his creation. But just like detective stories surprise us with who the culprit really is, in the words of Dwight Schrute, it's not the person you most suspect or the person you least suspect, it's the person you most medium suspect. So also this story does, is going to surprise us. While it may seem as though God delights in death on this account, if we follow the clues like good detectives, we might find out that God does just the opposite. God does not enjoy the death of human beings. God has done everything possible to ensure that death is destroyed. How? By stepping into death himself. So I want to dwell on the story of Genesis 22 for a little bit. Its details are pretty straightforward. God summons Abraham and tells him to take his only son. Only son? That's weird, right? Didn't we just hear about Ishmael a couple weeks ago? Last week? A couple weeks ago, anyway. No, last week. I don't know. I've got kids. He has to take his only son to Moriah and sacrifice him on a mountain. They go. Abraham lays his son on the wood for the burnt offering, pulls out the knife, and is about to kill his beloved son. Then an angel appears, tells him to stop, and says, nice job, you passed the test. Abraham looks up, sees a ram caught by its horns, and sacrifices that instead of his son. And overall, Abraham sees that the Lord provides. Okay, lesson learned. But surely there was an easier way to test Abraham, right? Now the angel knows that Abraham fears God? Abraham is a complicated, problematic even figure. But what he ultimately is, is an example of someone who is justified by faith. For us Protestants, Genesis 15, 6 is a crucial verse. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's super important. Abraham was faithful, so let's have him sacrifice his son? Something else must be going on here. As a first narrative, then things are a little perplexing. What happens when we read this account, though, in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, as though they were written for our example? How is this God's word to us? So let's put on our Sherlock Holmes hats, deerstalker hats together, and look for clues, all right? You ready? Okay, Joel's ready. Everybody else is terrified. Okay. (laughs) The first thing to notice is that we actually have some guidance in the New Testament about this. In John 8.56, Jesus tells us this. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. There's the faithfulness of Abraham. He acted as one, knowing Jesus' day. Hebrews gives us an even, even more detail in chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. It says this, By faith, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises, he had already embraced the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, Now, hold on to that, because that description is key. One and only son. Abraham had more sons than that. Even though God said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. That's Hebrews. 
There's a lot there, but the picture that we get of Abraham is surprisingly positive. He's faithful. He was looking to Jesus' day. And these are important clues. And there's one more clue in the New Testament that might shine the magnifying glass on something important for us, and that's Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, he who did not spare his own son, but gave us up, gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Through these passages, we can begin to see our great detective putting the pieces together for us. He is showing us that the difficulty of this passage is meant to point us beyond Abraham and Isaac. That the purpose of Genesis 22 is to extend itself beyond itself. Genesis 22 only makes sense as a narrative with a series of clues pointing us to a son who was not spared, Jesus Christ, the true sacrifice God has provided. So let's keep looking for clues. In verse 2 of our passage in Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, and if that weren't enough, the son whom you love. There are two things to notice here. First, God is laying it on kind of thick, right? He is reminding Abraham that Isaac is his only son, so that if he dies, there's no more promise left. And that he really loves Isaac, his dear son. God is deliberately pulling on the heartstrings, calling Abraham's tender affection for Isaac to the forefront. They will then have a whole trip to Moriah for Abraham to reflect on that love, on the challenging nature of God's command, and how those two forces are going to struggle inside of him. The second thing to notice is how these descriptions are a bit odd. Only son? Maybe that's because the son God would use, that Isaac was the son God would use to carry out his covenant promises, but that's a bit slippery. When Hebrews goes on to describe this act, as we saw, the author calls Isaac Abraham's only begotten son. The very word used to describe Jesus in places like John 3.16. And when you hear words like only begotten, your trinity alarms should be going off in your head. If you remember the last time I preached up here, if you haven't, I'm not going to explain the trinity all over again. But, right, if you hear words like only begotten, you should be thinking procession, how the father and the son relate to one another. Right? So Isaac is Abraham's only begotten son. That's bizarre. Right? But alarms should be going off in our head. Already we are getting hints that this story is about more than just Isaac and Abraham. It's a story about sacrifices made by only begotten sons. The signs pointing to Christ continue. They see the place for the sacrifice on the third day, says verse 4. God loves to work on third days. Right? When you hear third day, what do you think of? I hear a lot of mumbling, but I'm assuming that you're saying resurrection. Yeah, exactly. This particularly holds forth to us the mystery of the resurrection, God's final defeat over death, a story that once seemed to implicate God and the forces of death is now causing us to think ahead of God's final resolution to death, God's final word against death. 
that blessed third day when Christ was raised and ascended is our hope. It's Isaac's hope. It was Abraham's hope. It's God's way of telling us that though the world is filled with violence, God is going to step into that violence to end it from the inside out. Since we're looking at Genesis, we might also see this in the story about the flood. I was just talking to a colleague of mine who teaches uh, kids, like kids ministries and stuff, and she's telling me how weird she thinks it is that people like do Noah's Ark for little kids. It's a story about like, the whole world getting wiped out. Anyway, um, right? So God sees in the, flood, in the flood story how corrupt and, quote, full of violence the world had become. In Genesis 6.11, full of violence. God says he will destroy the earth on account of that violence, but enables Noah and his family along with the animals to be saved. Oddly, this is really odd. Though the earth will remain full of violence after the flood, immediately after the flood ends, there's more violence. God promises never to destroy the earth again. What's up with that? Was the whole flood a big failure? Well, lots of things are going on here, but God is showing us that violence is not resolved with more violence. The injustice of the world is not fixed simply by deleting all of the unjust people. God sees our evil, our violence, how, quote, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, says Genesis 8.21, and yet he will not meet violence with violence, with the result that only more violence is created. He is instead going to step into our violent hearts. He is going to provide. That's what the third day tells us. So if your warning flags are going off as you read Genesis 22, you should listen to them. It's not a story about a God who loves violence. It's a story about a son who will put an end to our violent ways. And there are more clues to be found in our passage. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, says verse 6. Isaac carries the very wood that is meant to serve as an instrument of his death. What are you, what are you thinking, right? Do you see it? Here Isaac is a figure of Christ, the one who carries his own cross to the place of the skull says John 19, 17. Like Jesus, Isaac is here both priest and sacrifice, carrying the wood for the offering and serving as the offering himself. But already we are seeing how Isaac was never meant to die. If Isaac had truly been intended to serve as the sacrifice, no good would have been done. He cannot be our priest and sacrifice, as neither and neither could any of us have fulfilled such an important role. Here's how St. Athanasius puts it. He says this, The death of Isaac would not buy freedom for the world. No, that could be accomplished only by the death of our Savior, by whose stripes we are healed. Again, we should be struck by the oddness of Isaac's sacrifice. Why is Isaac going to die? Why is he carrying the wood for the sacrifice? He could never be both our perfect priest and our perfect sacrifice. He should not be the one dying. Indeed, because he won't be. Someone else will be, the one to whom this story is pointing. 
And then we have this moving exchange between Isaac and Abraham. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering, asks the son. That seems like a fair question. Then in a moment that displays more gospel mysteries than he could ever have imagined, Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself. Origen, a theologian in the early church, captures the purpose of this exchange really beautifully. He says this, Abraham responded to his son's inquiry about present things with future things. He answered a present question with a future question, with a future answer. Abraham, through his faith, is confessing to the ultimate provision of Christ, a provision that will make Isaac's death unnecessary. Isaac will not die because God himself will provide the lamb. Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed God to be a God of resurrection, a God who brings out life from death, who cares about the violence and destruction of the world he has made and is actively working to defeat the evils that constantly surround us. Remember the mention of the third day. Abraham believed God would provide the lamb, and God did provide the lamb. That's what the story is about. God would not require the death of Isaac. God himself would become the son who was sacrificed, the lamb for the burnt offering. But at Isaac's sacrifice, Christ was not there. A ram was, and it was the ram who took the place of Isaac. And yet, the ram, like the rock of 1 Corinthians 10, was Christ. Just like Isaac, a ram cannot bring atonement necessary, the atonement necessary for human beings. It too must be a figure of the sacrificial son who will be provided. But make no mistake, Isaac has indeed gone from death to life, but not because of the dumb luck that a ram was stuck there nearby. It's because one day, God the Son becomes the sacrificial son on his cross. The Lord will provide, and on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided, says our passage. And while the ram is indeed a provision, the true provision testified to in this passage is to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, so I think we've gathered up all the clues. Here's time for that famous final review. This is the Scooby-Doo moment, all right? Here's how Origen puts it. Abraham offered to God a mortal son who was not put to death. God delivered to death an immortal son for humanity. Do you see the, the switch, the reversal? Here's how another early church preacher, Caesarius of Arles, puts it. He says this, in Isaac was designated what was later fulfilled in Christ. Abraham offered God his mortal son who was not to die, while God surrendered in death his immortal son for the sake of humankind. The mortal one does not die, the immortal one does die. Right, you see? Rather than being a story about how God delights in death and in the agony of his people, it's a story about the reversal of death. It's a story about how the cross of Christ, testified to here, takes the ugliest, most grievous aspects of human life and defeats them. 
It takes those who are mortal and makes them immortal. It takes those who, the one who is immortal and he dies. Aspects like the death of innocent children taken on its own. It is a very difficult story. Genesis 22. Imagine being in Abraham's shoes and being told by God to kill your child. On its own, it's harrowing. But we have seen that throughout the narrative, there are clues that show us that this is not at all what God wants. God is not providentially orchestrating close calls with the death of children. God is providentially orchestrating the defeat of death by swallowing it up himself in Jesus Christ. This is a story about Abraham and Isaac, and it's a story about Christ. We read of an only begotten son, beloved of the Father. This son has come to be an offering, a sacrifice. He arrives at his place of sacrifice on the third day, a day thematically important for Scripture. The son carries the wood intended to kill him all by himself, a priestly act where he himself is the sacrifice. But where Isaac was spared, he was spared only because the father did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, guaranteeing a resurrection on which Abraham's eyes were always fixed. One son was able to come down from the wood that was to lead to his death. Another son did not come down from the cross, even though he could have done so, in order to be the lamb God himself provided. God looked down on the cruelty of our world and said, I will not meet your cruelty with more cruelty. I myself will defeat cruelty from the inside. So God becomes incarnate in Christ Jesus and dies a death that we should have died, a death Isaac was about to die. And at the cross, we see cruelty defeated. The greatest example of the richest love is displayed on the cross, showing us that God does not delight in death. God is emphatically opposed to death and violence, and so he defeats it from the inside. Now, this is a scary story. It's a story like, Noah, like the Noah story. It's a story of fear, of anxiety, of trembling, and of faith. Why is it here? Why do we read it as Christians? Why is it in our Bibles? To point us to and prepare us for the death of the true only begotten Son. The one whose sacrifice provides true atonement cleansing us from our sins and purifying the world of its evil. And that's why at the end of our services, we cast everything to the cross, knowing that we have set our hopes on the risen Christ, like Abraham did. On that day, there will be no more weeping over those lost, for God will restore all that has been taken away. And that's ultimately our hope. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.